Hello, and welcome to MedTech Monday on the Road Pod. Investors have a timeline from entry to exit, and given the complexity of getting any device, digital therapeutic, or drug to market, it's no wonder that seed money is hard to come by for aspiring entrepreneurs. Well, that may be a little bit easier. We'll tell you why in a moment. We'd also like to take this episode to introduce Trends and Insights with Brian Wong. Brian will take a two to three minute look over the past 30 days and what's gone on in the marketplace, what's trending, and what he feels are the nuances that may shape the future. But first, a word from our sponsor, Zymedica. Hi, I'm Cindy Carter, Marketing Manager at Zymedica. When I think about the products we create for our clients, it's a world imagined for so many patients hoping for a solution to their health problem. A reimagined experience that they never thought possible until they discover companies like Zymedica. We have a big impact on resources, skills, and the professional commitment to deliver that solution to impact their lives, plus the lives of so many others. What we do isn't new, but it's years of research, design, and development by so many talented people. They take an idea and they make it into reality. I've seen the process go from a nap sketch all the way to commercialization from local to global. It's really exciting. Hello, and welcome to MedTech Monday, a podcast about medical technologies, trends, entrepreneurship, and innovations coming out of Southern New England. I'm Danielle Sturm, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Chiginski. Good morning, Danielle. For today's episode, um, it is a part of a series in partnership with Zymedica. The first episode of the series was launched on July 16th with our guest, Brian Wong, um, who is a MedTech analyst at Zymedica, where we talked about industry trends, how innovators can use them in the information and trends coming from the industry um, to successfully commercialize new regulated products. And today we have two guests, both very seasoned leaders in the medtech industry, joining us to talk about the investment side of developing regulated products and how innovators can align their development and strategy for the current investment landscape. So I'd love to introduce our two guests, um, Paul LaViolette, Managing Partner and CEO at SV Health Investors, and Lisa Carmel, VP of Strategy at Zymedica. So thank you both for um, joining us. And I first like to ask Paul to really um, introduce yourself to our listeners and just give us a little background of um, what you do and why you are where you are today. Well, thanks, Danielle. A little background for me, I've been in the business of medical devices in one form or another for now 40 years. I started uh, in the large company sector, worked for three strategics, the last of which was Boston Scientific, where I spent 15 years and uh, accumulated almost 30 years with large companies and then became an investor around 2009. Have been with SV Health Investors ever since. And of course, we're on a slightly different part of the technology innovation spectrum. We're now looking for early stage deals that we can uh, start, we can fund, we can seed, we can develop, and they ultimately, hopefully, will grow into uh, disruptive technologies for the medtech sector over time. Lisa, can you tell us the same of um, kind of a bit about your background, why you are where you are today? Um, and I know from our previous conversations to you, as your uh, position VP of strategy, um, you have a lot of different roles, especially out on the West Coast with um, some other groups. And can you tell us a little bit about those as well? Sure. So I started off my career working in consumer products for uh, large companies like Procter & Gamble, working internationally in Europe and in Asia uh, before moving to Silicon Valley and 
transitioned into healthcare, especially with the consumerization of healthcare. Um, I started working uh, as a management consultant uh, to large life science companies, um, doing due diligence, portfolio assessments, uh, and then started to consult to startups, uh, especially with nascent out-of-box technologies, devices, uh, diagnostics, drug delivery, digital, and then on wearables. Uh, I was also uh, on the founding team of a startup. We commercialized, it was a device startup that we commercialized in Europe uh, before moving to uh, join Zymedica as VP Strategy. And in my role as VP Strategy, I'm focused on building sustainable growth for the company. Um, and that involves developing our relationships with our uh, large uh, strategic clients, um, big life science companies and big pharma. And also as a part of that is forging strategic partnerships and carving out a role in the innovation ecosystem. And in that capacity, I serve on the board of various uh, accelerators and get in front of a lot of new technologies. Very cool. So Paul, I'm going to turn back to you and ask really if you could tell us a bit about your role at um, SV. And then Lisa mentioned that you guys have launched a fund recently. And we'd like to talk about that, and especially because I think Zymedica put out a blog post recently um, with an interview between you two about this fund. So I'd like to touch a little bit about that, because I think our listeners would be very interested. Sure. Thanks, Danielle. So my role at SV is really to deploy capital, to try to find, in, our, in my case, med medical device investments that we think can grow and obviously generate a return for our uh, in, investors. Uh, and we, we do that uh, at SV across multiple sectors. We invest in biotechnology, we invest in healthcare services, and we invest in, in medical devices. For medical devices, we recently launched a fund called the MedTech Convergence Fund. The purpose of that fund was to be a little, a little counter-cyclical, I would say, to go early stage in a category of medical device development that we thought would be a target-rich environment uh, for innovation and one that obviously was taking advantage of at least a couple of major technology trends in med tech. I would say we named it the Convergence Fund because of our view that several technologies were converging to create particularly opportune platform for investing. And I would say those three categories of, of converging technologies included, I'll call it generic medical technology, materials, sensors, batteries, uh, allowing for miniaturization or for uh, micro implants, longer uh, duration technologies, uh, transcutaneous energy delivery, things of that sort that really create new technology capabilities, and then marry that with data. And so we when we think about data capture from sensors, microcircuitry, the ability to then trans transmit data to cloud and enable cloud computing, you have a, a data-driven therapeutic uh, category now that exists today that wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. And then the last element of convergence is really communications, the ability to connect devices from the patient to a provider, from the patient to a company, from the patient to his or her family. And if you then if you then say, well, if you take advantage of next generation medical technologies, data and connectivity, we can use that to power a dislocation in care and ultimately move care 
from points of intensity uh, of cost of service in the hospital and start to move care further and further away from the hospital toward the home. And uh, by using connected devices in the home, we can create therapies under the guidance of physicians, prescribed, monitored, and delivering care that is easy to comply with, highly adherent, increases the probability that a full course of care will be delivered to a patient in the home, and obviously lowers the cost of the setting, and in the end, hopefully, produces a more compliant patient, a more adherent uh, therapy. And if a patient adheres to therapy, they have a higher chance of benefiting from it. And of course, the payers have a higher chance of getting cost effectiveness in the care that they're paying for. So that's the direction of the MedTech Convergence Fund. That's what we're looking for. And we think it's um, a particularly rich time for innovation in this space because of technology uh, convergence, as I mentioned, but also because patients, for a variety of reasons, are looking to find opportunities to be cared for outside of the hospital setting. And when did you launch this fund? Well, we, we did a first close a year ago and made a few investments. We finalized the fund in uh, the second quarter of this year, which is noteworthy, obviously, because uh, that's when COVID hit the world. And uh, it was hard to get anything done, of course, uh, when COVID struck. But we felt it was uh, a good sign that the fund could close and that the fund's investment targets, in many ways, because of the, I'll call it the telehealth, telemedicine uh, changes that we've seen catalyzed by COVID. In many ways, the fund was uh, picking up a tailwind due to COVID and the impact that COVID was catalyzing on on the healthcare delivery system. What, and for those investments that you made in the past through this fund, who have you invested in? Um, and is that changed what you're looking at because of COVID? So who you're going to invest in in the future? Um, and can you tell us a little story maybe about some of these people you've invested in through this fund? Well, we've made two investments. Uh, the first was a company called EBT. Uh, EBT is a company going after a very large underserved market today called uh, overactive bladder. It's an incontinence uh, form. And this is a neurostimulation technology. Uh, and EBT will be targeting a specific nerve to deliver neuromodulation therapy to control overactive bladder. And obviously, that will be a um, a therapy delivered in the home. The second is a company called Clarify Medical. Clarify delivers phototherapy using narrowband UV light to treat chronic skin conditions. This is a therapy that has historically been available in dermatologists' offices, but with advances in technology using LEDs, as an example, and using um, uh, application or app-driven uh, devices, we can now safely deliver phototherapy in the home conveniently and using all of the connected uh, technologies to to ensure that a, a patient has control uh, over the therapy as directed by the dermatologist. So it's a perfect combination of technologies uh, for home therapy uh, for a very large patient population, 8 million psoriasis uh, patients, 3 million vitiligo patients, who have never really had a convenient, controllable, smart uh, phototherapy system available for home use. Paul, I have a question um, regarding adherence and compliance for patients. 
what portion of our healthcare space is really called a self-inflicted wound where people do not comply and do not adhere to a course of medication or a course of therapy? Any idea? Well, Tom, the data, data generally show that about half of all prescribed protocols, and that could be as simple as take an aspirin in the morning, are adhered to, which is to say about half of what we deliver in care uh, that is dependent upon patient adherence is, is generally assumed to not be followed through. And so that could be an antibiotic. It could be a biologic therapy that costs, a, a prescription might have an annual cost of $50,000. It could be any other form of, uh, of a recommendation. And, um, and that, so that is, the, that is the enemy. What we're trying to do is ultimately close the gap between what has been prescribed and what we can, can then say is ultimately delivered. Um, and we, can, we know there are many triggers that improve patient compliance. One would be when the patient knows or senses that they're being monitored. When, when the patient knows the doctor is watching, <laughs> their compliance to a therapy generally goes up. When the patient has scheduling uh, reminders or when the patient has other follow-up tidbits, emails, texts, uh, when the patient has a care provider that could be uh, a person on the phone or it could be a, a digital uh, reminder, that we know also uh, adds to uh, ultimate uh, adherence to protocol. So when we merge all of those things into a connected device, uh, we know that compliance can go from as low as maybe 50% to as high as over 90%. And these tools are now readily available and can be built in to almost any form of therapy. The irony is the most expensive therapies, in the case, let's say, of the one I mentioned moments ago, Clarify Medical, the most expensive therapy might be biologics. And ironically, we send a patient home with a prescription for biologics um, but we don't know if that, if even the most expensive therapies are adhered to. So even uh, there's no correlation between the cost of the prescription and whether or not it's adhered to, because almost all of the therapy we send a patient home with has no way of, of really being tracked and monitored for uh, adherence. So the, the ability to create an adherence capability in a platform can then be spread more broadly, not, not to incorporate just the device that it's connected to, but maybe other therapies that come along that don't today have any form of being followed through and, and monitored. Interesting. Thank you. Hey, what was Paul, the um, I was very interested in um, uh, and intrigued by your partners in this, um, in this fund, uh, especially with the unique relationship you have with patient. And I was just wondering if you wanted to um, share a bit about that. Yes. Uh, so Tajian Corporation is a major corporation in Japan uh, that has a diverse business, including material science, uh, chemistry, if you will, but also pharmaceuticals and also home health care. And put very simply, Japan has been known for a long time to be the, uh, the, the, the graying society in, in, in the advanced world. It has the highest average age. It has a very high percentage of, uh, of patients in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and as a result, the Japanese healthcare system faces a, a very high uh, ratio of expenditures uh, of healthcare on the elderly, uh, 
and also has a very high concentration of in-home hair. And so as a result, it creates really a perfect marketplace for home therapies. And Tajian uh, is interested in accelerating the pace of innovation in home therapies. But they also recognize that the locus of, of med tech innovation generally is the United States. And so Tajian had the wisdom to seek a, a venture investment platform that could avail it as a corporate strategy to more and more innovation for home therapies that potentially could be uh, imported, if you will, to the to the Japan uh, home healthcare market that they that they serve and that they lead. What about traditional med tech investments, kind of outside of the convergence fund scope? Are you still interested at SV looking at those, or are you really focused on um, you know investing through this fund? Well, we are focused on the technologies I mentioned, the the disruptive technologies that can shift the site of care toward the home. However, we are open to and, and we have uh, a charter flexibility to invest in traditional med tech. What has generally burdened med tech as an investing field has been long, long holding times, which is to say, put your money in year one and get your money out year nine. Those hold times have been uh, a composite of development time, clinical time, regulatory time, possibly go to market time. When you add all those timelines together, in the absence of, of dropping one or two of those required timelines out, you, you can't add it up to be a, a relatively short, let's say competitive holding time. So the goal for the MedTech Convergence Fund is to drop one or two of those, those uh, timelines out drop out a long clinical time, drop out a long regulatory time. So by traditional med tech, we then go back and say, okay, well, how is it that we might invest in something that requires long development, long clinical, long regulatory times? Um, and the answer is, well, we, we don't want to enter early because if we enter early, then you have to exit early and that may not be happening. You may, may therefore want to uh, enter later if you believe that an exit uh, could be timely so that you can enter and exit still within a, a modest time, let's say four or five years, and not have to incur the risk of holding all of those sequential timelines uh, before exit. So we will still look at conventional medical devices if we believe their exit timeline can be reasonable, but we almost certainly won't go early stage for a conventional device because that uh, implies that all those sequence timelines are still ahead. And um, if you can't avoid one or two of those timelines, then the whole time overall will still be very protracted. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Before um, I kind of change the subject a little bit, I just want to ask if Lisa or Tom has any, you know, questions to ask, um, just following up on the fund. I, uh, yeah, I, had, uh, um, I was just going to say, um, I've seen an incredible unmet need in the, the marketplace. Uh, we get a lot of early stage um, startups that fit the metrics for your convergence fund. And they're caught in this, what we call the valley of death. They've gotten some early non-dilutive funding. They're now, looking, uh, they're now looking for seed investment in series A. Um, and that's where it's really tough to find funding and particularly now. And so um, I'm just I'm just wondering, Paul, 
you know, I think that your fund is very timely and I was incredibly impressed that you were leaning in and investing in this space. I'm just wondering, do you think the others are going to follow? Well, first of all, I hope so. And I say that because um, the, the category overall certainly could use an infusion of capital and, and we don't have enough capital in our fund or enough investing capacity uh, for all of the, the good ideas. Uh, we also generally like to syndicate our investment activity uh, with at least one other, uh, maybe two other co-investors. So we are, we are dependent upon a vibrant investing ecosystem. Um, and then third, I think to my comments about the fund structure and strategy, uh, we we think this is a dynamic new area. We we don't think it should be tainted, if you will, by historic investing issues in in the medtech space. This is a new time, a new era, a new category for medtech. Uh, we think it's a very sensible area. We don't think, frankly, that it's particularly high risk. And um, whether it whether it is a new fund raised or let's say a slightly reformatted investment strategy for existing medtech investors. We think there will be quite a few folks who who uh, see the the uh, direction of this marketplace the same way we do. So we don't think our idea is especially novel. We think it's very well timed. We're very pleased by the reception we've had to the fund and, and our, our planned investment strategy. And we certainly anticipate others will do the same and, and we welcome that. You think putting your um, uh, your uh, big strategic hat on, do you think that the large life science companies might, especially for startups that fit these metrics of remote patient monitoring, remote patient care, do you think they might start to move a little earlier or are they going to stick to their lane? Well, uh, strategics by definition have to, have to be agile. Uh, markets mature. Every strategic is comprised typically of a handful of classic medtech markets that they innovated in and and rode uh, through to size and maturity and then a lot of the a lot of the investing capacity goes into ongoing development and, and maintenance of market share but but as those markets slow then so so slows the growth of the top line and so really strategics have no choice but to try to innovate into new areas um, I think every strategic is aware of this general dynamic. They're aware that there's a continuum of care that now extends beyond the hospital, uh, that monitoring technologies are available, that therapies and monitoring uh, can be blended uh, into the same almost definition, and that there will be uh, extended opportunities for uh, revenue capture and for therapeutic benefit uh, both before an individual surgical intervention, let's say, and after. And so they're looking at extending that continuum of care. And um, I think they, the strategic will look at the physician, who, who, what physician population do I serve? They'll look at the disease category. What intervention am I trying to uh, bring to osteoarthritis or some other category? And then they naturally want to go downstream and upstream from that. And I think the category that we're talking about is a natural extension of, of some of these markets. So yes, this will be a, an area of strategic interest. It will become more and more obvious over time as some of these markets become larger and I'll say can move the needle for a strategic, whether they will invest early outside of a, a core interventional franchise remains to be seen, but we, we are seeing some uh, early evidence of this. I think the all, 
The other category uh, that we should be aware of is that when home therapies emerge, when connected devices emerge, they, they often become attractive to a different group of strategics. And I think what our, our conventional strategics in medtech have to be aware of is that if, uh, if a new area of uh, home therapeutic benefit and value emerges, it may be attractive to an unconventional competitor. And if, if you as the incumbent managing cardiovascular disease or, or managing a joint uh, degeneration, if you don't move uh, in, the, in the direction of those new technologies, somebody else will, and you'll find yourself competing with a new category uh, of competitor that uh, may not be uh, comfortable for you. And so we all have to stay agile, strategic caps to stay agile, and if you don't, somebody else will move in and, and uh, as they say, uh, take your cheese. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Who moved my cheese? You can look yeah. at it. It's a book. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, something that, uh, by the way, uh, something that we haven't really discussed yet is um, uh, SV Health Investors is a majority uh, shareholder of Zymedica. And do you want to share um, how that came to be or why that came to be? Yes, we are. And Zymedica is a, it's a fabulous company. Um, I would say two or three things drove that. Um, first of all, outsourcing in med tech as a trend uh, was occurring, still is occurring. And uh, perhaps the best example of that is outsourced manufacturing. And contract manufacturing is a very big industry, became a very big industry for the medical uh, device and a med tech sector in, in you know, specifics. And so um, as, uh, as we saw more and more outsourcing with uh, clinical research, with contract manufacturing, we were looking uh, for, as a med tech investor, we were looking for prospects for contract services uh, markets that we could potentially participate in that were earlier in their development than let's say contract manufacturing, which was already a very large scale I'll call it mature private equity uh, category. But the second, uh, I would say, was that um, uh, if you know uh, the strategic uh, thought process, and it, a, as you think about the early stage innovation uh, process, R&D had been an area that was generally um, coveted. It was held as proprietary. And there were relatively few scale operations, large scale uh, companies, as Zymedica was at the time, that had broken out of, if you will, the fragmented mom and pop category to become a true uh, company that could service large scale development requirements of, of major strategic. So the combination of outsourcing trends, of um, contracting services, and of an emergence of R&D capabilities to go alongside research, clinical research, or to go alongside um, manufacturing. We, we saw that as a real trend and we saw Zymedica as a, a bit of a, a standout having broken through s a, some scale boundaries and become at the time, five years ago, uh, one of the larger, most uh, high potential uh, companies in the space. So we made that investment. We thought the investment would allow Zymedica to grow, allow Zymedica to become more of a national footprint uh, provider and ultimately allow Zymedica to be attractive 
as a part of the ecosystem that feeds uh, manufacturing. So if you're a contract manufacturer, you may want contract design and development to feed the, the plant network. Um, if you're a large scale global development and design company that may be designing household uh, components or industrial components, you want to participate in the medical device category because it's large, it generally is more profitable, but it's hard to get into because it's a regular regulated space. So uh, we thought if we build Zymedica up to have some scale, it would be very attractive at, uh, uh, as, a, uh, as an asset to potentially uh, manufacturing companies, to global developers, to global service providers who are looking to potentially add design services to go along with other services. So we thought it would be uh, a company that could grow. It would, it would ride the, the wave, if you will, of outsourcing. It could be uniquely large and, um, and quality, a, a quality company within a fragmented space. So it, it could become a standout uh, company. And ultimately, we, we felt it had a lot of prospects to grow and ultimately be um, a desirable asset for other acquirers in the future. So that's why we invested uh, as we did. And I would say it's been a fantastic investment, a great company. We're delighted to have it in our portfolio and, and we have very high hopes for it in the years ahead. Lisa, how has... Is- SV, you know, being like the majority holding of Zymedica, has that been able, have you been able to like implement that through your work and ha- has that been able to support Zymedica's work? Well, yes, of course. And um, um, I think what's, what's been great for, for me is, um, especially with this new fund, uh, we get a lot of, um, we get in front of hundreds of new technologies and startups that fit this exact kind of metric. So, um, for companies, early stage companies to work with us, they need funding. So having a, a, a direct line of contact to with Paul and SV so we can we can better understand um, what they're looking to fund, how they're funding it. Um, uh, you know, because we, we try to help uh, startups, whether it's making the right connections and um, and then supporting them. And now another word from our sponsor, Zymedica. Hi, it's Cindy again. As an marketing manager, my job is to search for the opportunities that create these experiences. If you would ask me five years ago to describe the products that are commercialized at this company, I wouldn't have any idea companies like Zymedica even existed. I find myself learning what drives large multi-million or even multi-billion dollar companies to engage our team of experts, and it varies from company to company. I do know the people that realize a need or gap in our healthcare system know and trust that Zymedica is able to analyze and control this risk, improve experiences, and create products that entail and drive that product to commercialization. I feel really proud to be part of such an innovative and progressive group of people at Zymedica. I do strive to learn something new every day from my colleagues and realize I'm in a company that prides itself on making a big difference in our healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. And now let's go back to Paul and Lisa discussing where the new fund, the Convergence Fund, and Zymedica intersect. Right. Yeah, it's, it's ultimately really deal flow. Uh, yeah. We're, but you're, you're on the front end, um, and many of the companies that want your the services of Zymedica still need capital. So it's, um, it's a virtuous yeah. cycle. I'd say almost 
because like for instance uh we work with um we're a sponsor and a advisor to medtech innovator which is now the world's largest you know medtech accelerator and they they had like a thousand applications this year and we just whittled it down to 25. um and they're all you know they're all early stage they're all looking for funding so in a sense, we're, we're trying to help as best we can. And I would say pretty much every early stage startup that comes in the door, we're also trying to better help them connect in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So um, like when I heard about, when you told me about your, your fund, um, I was incredibly excited about it because it's so newsworthy, it's groundbreaking. And because of, of actually, because of the conversation with you and the, and this fund, I decided that I needed to find a way to get that, uh, to help get the news out to the, the people I'm connected with and Zymedica is connected with. And so um, we're launching this blog. It ha actually, the blog post will happen in the next week and it'll, it'll get launched. And yeah, what I was excited about it is, is it, it, meets a, it meets a critical unmet need for early stage startups, but it also serves the greater good of the med tech community. Yeah, no, I, I well, I, I appreciate your comments and I, uh, I agree the community needs that uh, kind of rejuvenation. Uh, and and I, I do think the, we haven't necessarily covered COVID in that much detail, but I do think COVID is a, a, a stimulus in a lot of ways for uh, changes in the way people think about care delivery and um, opens up uh, the sense of opportunism around some new markets that uh, previously would have been known, would have been uh, reasonable, but weren't necessarily considered exciting. And you go through 90 days of COVID and before you know it, uh, there there are companies that are worth 10 times as much, right? Because their business model happens to be aligned with the way everybody now thinks. And six months ago, we were struggling to get them to think that way. Oh, totally. I think uh, COVID's basically um, caused everyone to rethink um, how to innovate to keep, you know, whether it's healthcare. We've ever been speaking with folks about, you know, mid COVID, uh, how do you innovate to keep healthy and chronic care and COVID, non-COVID patients segmented, getting the right care at the right time, how to leverage technology across the whole spectrum, whether it's in clinical trials um, or, you know, uh, pushing more things to the uh, outpatient services um, and all the things that go along with that. That's great to hear that you say this, you know, this is such an opportunity and something we have to talk about. I was uh, having a conversation yesterday um, working on curriculum for a, a, a class um, at a, uni a local university around um, innovating in healthcare. And the, the professor was talking about, I don't know if I really want to, you know, integrate covid into this and talk about it and i've i've told them i'm like I'm, this is not going away like no matter what you're innovating for in the medical space you need to think about you know how covid's going to to impact it and how you're going to have to you know if you're going to commercialize it into the system covid's going to be there for a long time so just thinking of that and knowing like hearing that come from you of like this is something you need to to think about and there's opportunity here um and i'm glad you touched upon that too and before you were talking about you know this is a new era um and how have you seen and i know you touched upon it a little bit but i'm gonna ask you again is 
pre-COVID and mid-COVID, how has the trends in investment really changed? And something I'm really interested in is how it's affecting valuations. Well, uh, first of all, things are still changing, right? This has been a very rapidly evolving set of circumstances. Valuations, I think if we, st- we have to start at the very top. What, 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 is the, what, what does a Fortune 50 company think about? Well, the, the first week of COVID, their values went down 30%. And so if, um, if their market cap is down 30%, their view is anything I'm investing in is now worth 30% less than it was a week ago. Now, if you look at the trends over the last several months, uh, not, not because the economy is doing that much better, not because unemployment trends have changed, but overall, the, the stock market valuations have recovered. And what was down 30% 90 days ago might be down only 10 or 15% today. So there is a bit of a positive trend in that direction. But the way to think about it is that everybody's world was disrupted. And when your business, your core business, whether you're, at least I mentioned Procter & Gamble, I mentioned Boston Scientific, whether you're P&G or whether you're BSC, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's business was affected. And uh, we see this in healthcare delivery. What we thought was required has now become elective. <laughs> and all of a sudden, elective stopped. And so as everybody saw their basic business model, at least temporarily interrupted, um, it forced them all to pull back, pull back from investing, as an example. That, well, until we know what's going on in our core business, we can't invest in future. We have to get, have to get the, the most important elements right. And so there was a pullback, lower activity. That combined with market valuations, everybody says, okay, we're doing less investing and whatever we invest in is going to be cheaper. Now we start to see people recovering a little bit. There's a little opportunism in the market. People realize there are a lot of companies that are um, in need of capital. There are a few few participants in the the investment market. And so uh, that maybe the best companies will get investment capital, but it may still be at a discount. But now there's more of a recovery. There's more financing activity. I would say after the first month, everybody was somewhat um, stunned. The, The market was somewhat hibernating. It's definitely come roaring back to life, uh, but we haven't seen data yet on actual financings. My sense is that won't that won't really come out for the next uh, couple of months, where we'll start to see a real sense of are we down by 25%? Are we down by 50%? It's definitely going to be down. It will definitely recover, it, and that recovery I think will be slow. The real question is, will it be complete or not? Um, and so we're uh, we're no different than anybody else. We have a portfolio of companies. Many companies in that portfolio have been hit by the pandemic, have been hit by the, the cancellation or deferral of uh, procedures. We've seen hospitals hit uh, right with the, the, the cessation of uh, surgeries. All of those things are now beginning to recover. I do think the pandemic eventually, the COVID-19, corona, the, the select coronavirus will be managed, but some of the lasting impact on our views about healthcare, patients' desire to go into the hospital, uh, what is ultimately considered elective versus um, essential. All of those things, I think, will will have uh, differences and will require adaptation over time as a result of what we've learned. And and lastly, the, the MedTech Convergence Fund, 
because it is focused on home therapies, because it is focused on connecting patients with with uh, digital uh, links and data-driven therapies, it likely will be uh, that more and more therapies are headed in that direction. Physician specialists saw what their practice, what happened to their practices when patients stopped going to the office. <clears throat> All of a sudden, telemedicine visits went through the roof. We've seen now, just yesterday, a executive order uh, from the White House extending telemedicine uh, reimbursement changes uh, to make them permanent. Um, and if you really look at what held telemedicine back in general over time, it was it was a little bit of getting used to it, and it was a little bit of follow the money, uh, because the reimbursement structures were inclined more toward in-person visits than than um, digital. And now, uh, because of COVID, we see uh, patients and physicians alike have gotten used to because they had no choice uh, of how to connect digitally. And now we see that the money, uh, the reimbursement will likely flow uh, permanently in support of that, that form of, of care. Well, then that, that therein lies a permanent trend. Um, and so we don't know exactly how it will settle out, but that's an area of categorical growth for the uh, foreseeable future. And Lisa, we've talked um, about, you know, trends and how COVID has impacted, you know, strategy of investment groups. How has it impacted the strategy of Zymedica and being a product developer at this time? It's impacted pretty much everything. <laughs> we have, uh, we are with our large strategic clients, there's some folks that are leaning in um, during crisis is a great time to um invest and push forward for some others are you know waiting it out for a quarter but in general i think what's also happened is as everyone uh, starts to look at their strategic planning in the second half of this year for 2021 they're also have got their first half under their belt and they're trying to figure out what can they accomplish in this year what do they push out to next year and um with everything the sh you know, shifting market and so forth. So we're in the process of, you know, trying to help them with some major pain points. But in general, you know, everyone's, like I said before, because we're in the midst of innovation and, and helping people innovate with technology across device, diagnostic, drug delivery, wearables, robotics, um, uh, data, it's everyone's trying to figure out what the next gen is, but the next gen post COVID too. So um, I can, I, I, we're busier, like I said, than we've ever been. Yeah, us too. <laughs> um, before I close it out, um, I just want to ask if Lisa or Paul or Tom, you have any extra last questions or anything that you want to um, talk about on the podcast? Thanks, Danielle. My, my closing comment would be that through decades in in this healthcare delivery world and in the medical technology forum, we've seen a lot of change. Uh, and I would say change is now upon us at, a, at an even more rapid pace. We've had to make more acute directional changes in investing strategy. Uh, individual companies, large, medium, or small, have had to rethink the nature of their business and their business models. We've learned very rapidly that we can adapt uh, to new ways of doing things. Um, and so while it's a, it's a pandemic that, that no one wanted and, and no one would like to ever see again, we, we have learned a lot about ourselves 
uh, about our ability to work uh, through constraints, about our ability to change. And I, uh, I do think those uh, will have lasting benefit on our sector and on innovation. So I'm, um, I'm hopeful that we can power through this, this challenging time, but I'm also uh, quite uh, op optimistic about um, what uh, things will look like two or three or five or 10 years from now. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you both for um, coming on today. And Paul, if anyone's interested that's listening, you know, in your fund or connecting with SV Health um, investors, what's the best way to do that? Well, certainly anyone can um, uh, contact us at any time. We'd be happy to talk to companies, uh, to entrepreneurs, to innovators about uh, their business plans and their desire to uh, innovate and ways that we can help them do that. So we're, we're open. We are not hard to get a hold of. So send us a note. Uh, we'll connect. We'll make time and, and we'll talk. We'll talk shop. Awesome. And Lisa, thank you so much for coming on too and bringing Paul in. It was um, a great conversation and I think it was really, really um, needed at this time for a lot of our listeners to really find out um, what's going on in investments, because I think it's really unknown for a lot of people that are heads down working on their startups right now. So thank you very much. And what is the best way to contact you, Lisa? I'm sure everyone can find me, but um, I'll be launching a blog and I'll be looking for um, other stories to share, especially uh, groundbreakers like uh, Paul and SV Health Investors, you know, that are looking to not only um, uh, support innovation, but um, seeking to support the greater MedTech community. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. Thanks, Danielle. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. Thank Thanks, you. everybody. Sorry I didn't contribute that much, but I'm, I'm hearing myself. Something's wrong today. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Thank you very much. You, you, you guys sounded great. And as usual, I learned a lot. Hang on. Don't go away. It's not over yet. Listen to our new section, Trends and Insights. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Wong, a senior medical analyst from Zymedica, and welcome to Trends and Insights, where we look at medical trends from the last month and understanding the value drivers of technologies today. Brian, give, give me an idea of what Livongo and Teladoc really means right now. I think we talked about it before. You thought it might happen in 2030. Give me an idea what the value implications are right now. It's such an interesting merger. Right. Um, this was definitely fueled by COVID, where both companies had three to five X market cap increases in the past six months. Um, and both being in a very nascent early stage industry. And so it reminds me actually a lot of um, PayPal and uh, Peter Thiel's PayPal and Elon Musk's uh, X.com merger in the early 2000s. And then you had Computer Motion Intuitive merger in uh, 2003, I believe. So these were both mergers of equals in very early stages of a brand new nascent field. Um, I think the Teladoc, Livongo, if, if we believe that care transitions out of the hospital, the scale that this merger brings um, and the opportunity that this merger brings, I think we're only at the very, very tip of it. Um, it's interesting that the, the valuations have come down a bit post-merger, 
But I, I think over if you if you have a fairly long horizon, time horizon, uh, it's hard to imagine a a newcomer be able to make a meaningful impact um, in their business for for the next few years. So I, I think it's it's uh, it's it's one it's, it's definitely uh, I think it's it's one of the most most interesting and honestly surprising merger acquisitions. Uh, instead of getting bought out, I think people were expecting to get bought out by cash. Like they wanted Livongo to get bought out by cash by somebody else by a big player that was willing to pay more. Um, but I, I think this merger gives them a, a very long runway um, to take care of chronic diseases and to transition a lot of more and more care out of a hospital, a high expense uh, system. On another subject, we've previously talked about ventilators. Um, and now you feel that we're transitioning from to talk about ventilators to vaccines. Give us an idea where you think that's headed. Yeah, we that that was that was kind of the headline of the day, maybe three months, four months ago, mm -hmm. where you have companies like Tesla, you have companies like GM, Ford, um, every, basically every, all the governments and all the major companies stepping up to say, hey, we need we need ventilators, we need uh, there is a massive shortage around the world, and we had innovation hubs, we had teams spring up from for for prototype rapid prototyping, low cost devices, simple devices. But what we've seen now, um, for, again, from this quarter is ventilator heavy companies or venti venti ventilator sub dedicated companies like ResMed and Vapotherm basically have seen, they, they've, they've told us that they've kind of seen the, the, the peak of ventilator demand, at least in the US. Um, so these, again, these companies whose valuation has risen on their ventilator capacity um, have seen a pretty dramatic correction uh, especially the two I'm talking about, ResMed and Vapotherm. So while the demand worldwide might not have been cut, in, it may not have reduced as much, I think the story, the kind of headline story has very much shifted towards uh, therapeutics and vaccines. And I think the delivery of this vaccine, uh, we, we've, we've seen now you know, multiple players in the U.S., multiple players across the world that are racing towards this vaccine. And... I think while safety and efficacy is definitely something we need to talk about, uh, I think the delivery mechanism, the, the how do we get these vaccines to people, mm -hmm. um, I, I, the, one of the greatest phrases I've heard is, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Um, and and it, this is truly a global, global need. And how can the healthcare community come together um, to make this not a geopolitical issue, but more of humanity issue, right? I, in that light, I read an article this morning, um, Bill Gates talked about spending $150 million to try and get the price of a vaccine down to $3. Yep. What do you think yeah, of I that? I think Moderna, Moderna guided that their vaccine was, uh, I think, in the order of 60 and mm -hmm. doing 40 and $60 a, a shot. Mm -hmm. um, and, if, and the thing is, we don't know how long, we, we have no long-term data, right? So this could be a shot every three months. This could be a shot every six months. This could be a lifetime shot. Um, we don't know yet because we're, we're rushing to do this thing because of the need. But either way, we need to figure out how to get this vaccine to 7 billion people um, over the course of a fairly short time. And it's a problem that we've never really been able to address. Now, we can't get food to them. We can't get water to a lot of them. How are we going to get a vaccine to them? So anyway, thank you, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. This podcast was co-produced by Danielle Sturm of the New England Medical Innovation Center and Tom Chiginski of MyVoiceTeam.com. 
Audio engineered by Tom Chiginski of myvoiceteam.com. 